Good morning. Uh, thanks for the invitation to preach. I uh, wish I could be with you this morning in your wonderful new building. I, I attended Rockway uh, for several months with my daughters when we first moved to KW, and I always enjoy every opportunity I have to worship with you on a Sunday morning. I agreed to Scott's invitation to preach a long time ago, uh, but I wasn't able to uh, to preach when I initially agreed to because of because of the pandemic and because of changes to my own schedule. And now I find myself thinking about peace and Peace Sunday in a very different context than I had expected to, with pandemic and elections and and uh, other turmoil around us. I'm finishing up this sermon on Thursday, November 5, at a point in time when the United States presidential election is still undecided. Maybe by the time you are listening to this, everything is settled and a sense of quiet, calm equanimity has fallen over the land. I doubt it. It really feels like a time when peace and the dream of peace feels like a particularly distant dream. And there are other things that feed into this, more than just uh, the U.S. elections. We are, of course, living in a time of pandemic. Cases of COVID are rising rapidly uh, all around us, across the world. Uh, we are reminded of global warming. Last year, a little bit earlier than now, there was a March that was a time of hope, but there doesn't seem to have been much change since then. And earlier this year in the summer, the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder uh, in Minneapolis and other U.S. cities was a time of racial reckoning. We listened to the anger of the voices of those we have not listened to carefully enough before. And as I sat and thought about what to bring to you on this Sunday, I always have to sort of scratch my head and wonder, well, why does a church even want a historian to speak to them? I'm a, I'm a historian at Conrad Grable University College. I, I get invited to congregations quite a lot. I love doing so. I love visiting the congregations at KW and in the outside areas, but I'm always a little bit surprised when I get one of these invitations. I know that Mennonites have used history to shape their identity, uh, and they take their history seriously. This began quite early with the gathering of the martyr stories, or the stories of those who suffered and died, in order, to, um, and then this, the stories were then uh, captured and spread in order to encourage faithfulness. Initially, those stories were sung, uh, and then they became uh, written down as Anabaptists became tolerated. They were put into prose, bound up in beautiful volumes, which were printed to encourage faithfulness in those who might have been tempted otherwise by the allure and the surrounding wealth and comfort around them. With the Martyr's Mirror, the most famous of these stories, uh, Mennonites were making a larger argument about their own movement. They began with Jesus and with the death of Stephen to claim part of a longer tradition of faithful suffering for adult baptism, for, for nonviolent adult baptizers. They were making a historical argument. And looking for faithfulness in history is, is part of the Christian confession. Jewish and Christians, Jewish believers and Christian believers claim that God is active in history. It's a bit, it was a scandal to, in the Greek and Roman world, and it, sometimes it feels like a scandal to uh, say that today. The verse we heard from Deuteronomy about God's faithfulness in the past uh, claims that it was God who led the, 
who saved the Israelites from oppression in Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm with awesome power and signs of wonders. This story and the telling of the story was why the, Israel, why the Israelites, why the Hebrews gave their produce to God, their first fruits. They celebrated all the good things that God had done for them and their family. So tithing and discipleship weren't done to earn God's favor, but in gratitude to God's activity in history. There are other stories as well. We can think of Joshua's commandment to erect a pile of stones as the uh, Israelites crossed the Jordan River, River into the Promised Land, so that when children asked why the stones were there, generations later, they could hear the story of God's faithfulness. This is the, the line in this story in Joshua is, and when they shall ask, this is the, the title, of course, of the movie about the uh, Mennonites in Russia under the Tsar in the Civil War. Christians believe that God's most significant action in history was the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there is theological justification for looking for signs of God in history and for knowing the story of where we've come from. Uh, we also, I think, the ethicist in me says we need stories of faithful discipleship. We need to hear the words of the women and the men that came before us to sing the songs that they sang and to tell the stories of the decisions that they made. Because uh, this, this idea that God is active in history is one that's shared um, in, by lots of different people. We can think of Martin Luther's, one of Martin Luther King's fam most uh, beloved lines, which is the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This is one of his favorite lines. I'll say it again. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He liked it so much that this is engraved into his memorial in Washington, D.C. It's this idea that, right, it's it, justice is coming, and justice is where we're going to end up, even if we can't see it right now. Now, I didn't know this before doing a little bit of research, um, but this was also one of President Barack Obama's most favorite lines. He used it in many of his speeches, but the original even predates Martin Luther King Jr. by about a century. It comes from a Unitarian preacher named Theodore Parker, who said, uh, originally said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one, and my eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight, but I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. So this idea of history and the arc of history bending towards justice has got a long tradition of uh, in Christian thinkers. However, the historian in me feels a bit uncomfortable with this vision of the ark sometimes. For I don't think we really want to hear parts of history that challenge it. We don't really want to hear uh, people, and people don't necessarily really want to have historians putting up their fingers and saying, mm, but actually it's more complicated. My students always roll their eyes when I tell them that things are more complicated. Um, just as often as historians can tell the stories of faithful patriarchs and matriarchs, we can uncover the dark underbelly of a tradition or a country. For Mennonites, it can be the fact that 16th century Anabaptists 
may not have been the types of heroes that we need them to be in a modern democratic country. Or it's the stories of Mennonites moving into land that had been cleared, um, forcefully cleared of inhabitants, indigenous inhabitants in Russia, Canada, the USA, and Latin America. And it's the stories that we are now starting to tell about the ways that Mennonites participated in or benefited from Nazi rule in Germany. So it's good to have this vision, and it's good to tell ourselves that God is faithful and active and the, the universe's arc bends towards justice, but it's hard to believe that sometimes when we look at the world around us. We, have, we believe a vision of history that's always getting better, so it sometimes becomes difficult to hear stories of despair and of suffering. The stories of systemic racism in the U.S. and Canada is a very different view of history. So this, is, this summer was a good reminder for me that it can be harder to hear stories of God's faithfulness when you feel as if the universe is working against you. During the summer, I read the excellent memoir, Between the World and Me, by the author Ta-Nehisi Coates. Coates is an African-American author who is critical of Christians who have an overly positive view of the universe. And he writes, I had no sense that any just God was on my side. My understanding of the universe was physical, and its moral arc bent towards chaos and then concluded in a box, that is a coffin. The moral arc of the universe, Coates wrote, bent towards chaos and then concluded in an arc, sorry, in a box. I have been thinking about Coates's story and book for several months now. I'd recommend the book to many people. It's a great book. To a certain degree, I think Coates is correct. The universe or here or history has no coherent sense to it. There isn't one arc to history, but many different arcs going in different directions that look different depending on the angle from which they are viewed. So on Peace Sunday in perilous times, what message should Christians have for those who are suffering or despondent? And this can be for those who are despairing or despondent within our own congregations. Those of us who believe that God is active in history need to remember what image of this God is that we worship. In the passage from Revelation today that was read, John, writing from a context in which the church was suffering under the rule of the emperor Nero, John declares that the one who will conquer Babylon, that is Rome, the one who conquers Babylon and who has become ruler of the New Jerusalem, is a slain lamb. In John's vision, it is a ferocious-looking lamb with many eyes and horns, but it's a lamb that has won by losing. The lamb is both slain and victorious. The theologian, uh, Mennonite theologian Pete Dula reminds me that uh, the arc of God's purpose in history bends towards the cross. This sounds like an answer, Dula writes, but it is an answer that lays bare a host of difficult questions. How is the cross justice? How does that fulfill the promises of the Old Testament? And, and uh, Dula challenges us not to give any easy answers to the questions that the cross raises. But it's a good reminder that we who are bound by a new covenant of peace need to remind ourselves 
that we follow a lamb, that there will be disappointment and despair. So we have to tell the stories of our moral failures and remind ourselves there are many for whom our vision of the New Jerusalem feels more like a mirage than a promise. Being a people of God's peace doesn't mean that events will always go our way. But we need to hang on to that vision nonetheless. The great historian Natalie Zeman Davis said that history shows that the vision is never fulfilled. Things never work out in the grand manner. The future is full of difficulty and sometimes terrible consequences and disappointments. But without the memory of the dream, nothing hoped for would happen at all. So rather than the vision of our surrounding culture, which only praises success and growth, entrepreneurship, discovery, let us follow the vision of a slain lamb, which should lead us to see solidarity with the oppressed as part of Christian discipleship and shape the way we worship, read scripture, pray, and study history. Let us not shy away from the hard truths of the history we discover. And let us hang on to the vision of the future, where every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in sea will sing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.